So Afterlife, it is a very strange and moving and very beautiful movie. And it made me think of these lines of poetry by my favorite poet, Walt Whitman. It's really important to us here at Wellsprings because he gave us our mission. It's for a song of myself. He asked the question, what do you think has become of the young and the old men? And what do you think has become of the women and the children? They are alive and well somewhere. The smallest sprout shows there really is no death. And if there ever was death, it led forward life and does not wait at the end to arrest it. And it ceased the moment that life appeared. All goes onward and outward. Nothing collapses. And to die is different from what anyone had supposed. I think that if there was a poem that could be set to the meaning of afterlife, It would be that. It would be Whitman's words. The basic plot of afterlife is probably unlike anything you've ever heard about before. The newly deceased arrive at something like a way station. It looks like a little bit like a rundown hotel or motel out in the country somewhere. And they are assigned a caseworker. And the caseworker says to them, sort of like the bureaucratization of heaven, if you will, says to them, You are here for one week, and you have two days to decide what is your most meaningful or happiest memory from the life that you have lived. By Wednesday, we will set up, we will stage that memory for you, and then at the end of the week, you will see that memory, become absorbed into it, and that will be eternity for you. It is amazing. Right up until that moment, there's very little that's sort of magical about the movie. It's very interesting. After the memory is selected, what they do is a little bit like community theater, if you've ever seen the movie. Literally, it is like cotton balls strung up along uh, the places where they hang the wash after it's been left out to dry, and they just pull that back and forth, and that's supposed to be clouds outside of a plane. For a breeze, where they use some water into a fan for spray. It is completely amateurish, but I have to tell you, the actors in the movie completely sell it. They're completely dedicated to their craft of constructing these memories. And at the end of the week, each of the newly deceased sits in that screening room and sees their memory, and poof, they're gone. They are entered into eternity. Now, people have all sorts of different memories that they want to take with them. One young woman says, well, just last week, she died, you know, an untimely kind of death. Just last week, she went to Splash Mountain at Disneyland. And she'd really like that for the rest of her life, for the rest of her eternity. Her caseworker says, you know what? 30 people just selected that last week. Maybe dig a little bit deeper. And she does. She takes a look at something maybe a little bit more close to her heart. There's some really very mundane and beautiful things that people select. Times when they felt most fully alive, most fully engaged with life. There's an older woman who remembers a day that as a child, she put on her most beautiful red dress and danced, a very traditional Japanese dance, in front of her brother's friends. This was her memory, and this will be her eternity. A man remembers a plane trip that he flew in a little biprop propeller plane. Beautiful, small things that signify to people their moment when they were most alive. Now, of course, there are some people during this week who have some difficulty selecting 
their memory. And that's very key to the plot. And we'll get to that in just a second. And so what do they do? They review tapes, VHS tapes, of every year of their life. They sit there and they watch and they look and they discern. And they try to see, can we find the one memory that I really want for the rest of my life? It's a little bit in this way, like the movie Defending Your Life. Remember that? That Albert Brooks comedy with Meryl Streep? This movie is a lot better, frankly. I got to tell you, it's without the slapstick and without the obvious ending in that movie. And actually, there's a clue to the original Japanese title. It's not afterlife. The literal translation of this movie originally, and it makes a lot more sense in some ways, is wonderful life. Wonderful life. Now, of course, I can see why they changed it, because we think in America, wonderful life, what do we think? We think of Jimmy Stewart. We think of It's a Wonderful Life. And you've heard me fess up to this before. I am a complete sap. I love It's a Wonderful Life. This movie is so different. It's a Wonderful Life. The impression it makes is kind of like the ocean, the waves crashing down on the seashore and really making an impact. Afterlife is a little bit more like way out there, deep somewhere in the current, below the surface of the ocean. Those currents that are just as powerful, just as moving, but you really have to look to be able to see them. One of the things that gives this movie its distinctive flavor is that a lot of it is actually sitting with people who the filmmaker, who was a documentarian before he actually made this movie, over 500 interviews he did with people asking them just this one question, what is your most significant memory that you would take with you into your eternity if you had the choice? And some of these interviews are intercut with the actors, and you can't really tell who is who, and it makes it very, very powerful. And I also got to tell you, this movie is incredibly slow. It is not action-packed. It is the opposite of action-packed. And after the first half hour or so, I, okay, you know, let's get moving here a little bit. You know, I'm conditioned, maybe, especially after seeing a lot of the summer movies that I preached on for a lot of slam-bam, maybe some action here. But then I recognized the slowness of the movie was actually a gift to me. Because in the gaps in the movie itself, I found myself hearing my own voice. I found myself asking myself the question, what would be my one memory that I would take into eternity with me? And if the movie were more fast-paced, I don't think I probably would have done that, as recognized as quickly how I was really responding what my fears were, what my hopes were, what my memory was about the life that I have lived. See, as viewers of this movie, we are asked that implicit question, what would your one memory be? Your one memory that you would construct your eternity out of. See, we, the viewers, have a distinct advantage that the people in the film don't. They are looking backward. We are here looking in the midst of. We are here right now asking ourselves this question, and especially if you don't know yet. Some of those people in the movie didn't know yet. Maybe you don't know yet today. I don't think this is something that you just snap your fingers and say, aha, I know what it is. Maybe some of you would answer that, but I would venture to say that probably it would take a little bit more thought, some time, some consideration. Now, this can be also a discomforting question to answer. The Dalai Lama, a number of years ago in an interview, was asked at age 58 what he was going to do with the next phase of his life. And his answer is this, I'm going to prepare for my death. That seems like a very depressing answer, doesn't it? But in reality, 
it could not have been less depressing. It inspired, actually, one of the most influential books I've ever read. And I'm going to return to this book in the fall during a message series. But a little preview of it right now. It's called A Year to Live. It is by Stephen and Andrea Levine. And Stephen Levine, after hearing this interview with the Dalai Lama, said, I'm going to set up this experiment for myself. That I am going to give myself one year to live as if one year from this day, I know that my life will come to an end. And he really practiced this day after day after day. And what he found is that his life became incredibly purposeful, incredibly clarified. He said that he moved from a state of existence in which he put it this way, that I was living with one foot still in the womb, not fully entered into life. And so in this year, he had the opportunity to ask himself the question, how can I move beyond living this hesitant, unlived life within me? How can I access that deepest, truest part of myself so that in this year, it becomes not just a year to live, but a year to live, a year to live. Now, sometimes... Sometimes we might find ourselves in that situation of feeling that hesitant, fearful life that Stephen Levine did when he started this process of the year to live. And actually the plot turns on in the movie an exact kind of person like this. A man who died at age 70 and believes his life to be so absolutely unremarkable, what memory would he choose? He cannot think of one. And so he sits down with his caseworker and reviews 70 VHS tapes of every year of his life to try and find that memory. And in this also, the movie, which has posed us an implicit mystery, has its answer given. Where did the caseworkers come from? Who are they? Well, who they are are the people who could not select their own memory when they came through. They got to the end of the week. They said, "Uh uh-uh, I can't do it. I don't know what it is. And so their job then becomes to help the people who come after them into the afterlife. And on this hinge swings the most moving, emotionally resonant part of the story. It is about a young caseworker. And when I say young, he died at 22, although he's been doing this for over a half century. He's been there for over 50 years, helping people make their choice of their memory. And he is set up and paired with this older man who cannot select his path into the next stage of his existence. What they realize is that this young man, a Japanese soldier, died during World War II. And that the woman he was engaged to and never got a chance to marry, she became married to this older man wasn't able to think of the memory he would select. It is really a beautiful and profound, very quiet moment. Because what this older man, who is recently dead, tells the younger man, who's been 50 years dead, is that every day that he was married to his former fiancée, every day of their marriage, she went to his grave. She remembered him. She recalled him. And so his memory, this young caseworker, becomes a very simple moment that he had overlooked before. It becomes the moment when he and his fiancée are sitting on a bench before he goes away to war, the last moment that they shared. His life, now seen through the eyes of another, takes on a significance that he could never tell it had on his own. 
knowing what his fiance thought of him after he died. It changes his entire perspective upon his life, and he is finally ready to move on. That's actually my hope. It's a quiet movie, so it's not going to bash you over the head with its meaning. But that's my hope, is that all the caseworkers in the movie who couldn't make their selection, and we meet one of these guys who's come in this week. He's a young and angry kind of punk, and he said, not only... I couldn't choose, I won't choose. I refuse to choose. And so he becomes sort of a ward of one of the older caseworkers saying, I'll take him under my wing. It's kind of like, in some ways, you know, The Lovely Bones, that Alice Siebold novel that came out a couple years ago that actually they were filming just last year in Norristown, I believe. So this idea that the progress of our souls, our pilgrim's progress, perhaps doesn't end even after this existence, this earthly existence is over. So that's my hope with all the caseworkers in the movie, is that through their work, even if it takes them hundreds of years, they will be working with the newly deceased and come upon one in such a way who finally finds that tangent with their own life, who finally gives them that perspective upon their own life that unlocks the key so that they can find the meaning, so that they can go and take their next step and can continue to develop. The deepest lesson of the movie is this is that our memories are not our own. The final sentence of all of our lives has not been spoken even when our lives end. And that an additional perspective on who we are can be exactly the thing we need to open up a sense of perspective upon our lives that we ourselves could not get. Now, just in the last couple of weeks, I had an experience of this that was a this very much worldly kind of experience. I shared with some of you before, I know in my preaching, the exact moment when I knew I was not going to go on and get a doctoral degree. I was at Yale Divinity School, and I was in a seminar called Freedom in Action. It was taught by my supervisor, my intellectual mentor. And most of the students in the class were doctoral students, and she gave me permission to take it. And we were studying Jean-Paul Sartre's, you know... Big, 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 being and nothingness. A light read, I recommend it. (laughs) And there's this thing that Sartre does in the book. He talks about the look, capital T, capital L, the look, the look. What the look is about for Sartre is that moment in which human wills, human agency counteracts each other. And we are struck up against another person, recognizing that we are being looked at by them and something in us has changed. This is not a positive thing for Jean-Paul Sartre. His example is this. Imagine yourself that you're in an empty room and there is a door to another adjacent room and it is closed and has a very old-fashioned kind of knob and below that a keyhole. And what you do in this scene, you are down on a knee in front of that keyhole. Just maybe, you know, you wanted to fix the lock. And all of a sudden... You feel that another's gaze, the look, is upon you. Someone has entered in back of you. And in that moment, you know that they think you're a peeping Tom. (laughs) That's his model of human interaction. Not very happy, not very positive, but this combative test of human wills in which we're trying to explain ourselves but never fully can. Now, we were studying this in the class And perhaps, I don't know, my mind just went immediately to the practical. And I said, well, what would stop you? What would stop you from just getting up off your knee, turning around to face the person who's come in the room after you and explaining, I wasn't peeping, I was just fixing the lock. Now, when I said this, 
there was a doctoral student down the table from me who gave sort of a sniff, almost a snort. Almost like, look at the nice little master student trying to solve a practical problem. Here's a cookie. Go take a nap. And I got to tell you, I started backtracking right away. And this is the best I could reconstruct from what I said. I started talking about how Sartre's phenomenology and contradistinction from Martin Buber's theory of dialogical intersubjectivity presupposes a counter-subjectivity that I consider to be nothing more than a desacralized, secularized version of original sin, herein posited as a variety of assumed metaphysical guilt in a universe now absent of recourse to an omniscient deity. Got that? Neither did I. The point of the memory is that I felt the die was cast. That that moment, what my original answer was, not my academically correct answer, but what my original answer was, why can't you just get up off your knee and explain yourself to someone? I felt that was my tell, that I would not be best called to a life of the academy, to the theoretical first and foremost. Now, that's been my memory of that class, and that's been a significant one. At least it was my memory until just a couple weeks ago. A friend of mine from Div School got back in touch with me on Facebook, and the first message that she sent me, she still lives in Connecticut, very close to where my advisor has retired, and is writing a book, she says, on that course. And the two of them had lunch, just had lunch with my old professor. And this is what she reported verbatim, cold. This is coming to me, I hadn't talked to this woman in 10 years. She said, Margaret Farley, the professor, said to me, didn't you take that class, that seminar, during your first semester? I said, yes, I did. It was a doctoral seminar. You permitted me, a master's student, to take it. Then she said, there was another Div student who was not one of my doctoral students that I allowed to take it. He was very, very good. He had red hair, Ken something. What I thought was one thing, and my memory of that class was entirely different when seen through the eyes and from the perspective of my advisor. And I remember, actually, I got an A in the class. I had conveniently forgotten that. And so I tell you, this has completely opened me up over the last couple weeks. And so at the end of this year, I'll be leaving my ministry and returning to a doctoral (laughs) program. (laughs) Joke. (laughs) Joke. (laughs) The final irony of this memory, of my memory being turned back around on itself is actually... It is the very reversal of what Sartre was talking about with the look. Rather than it being a combative test of wills, of whose life can over-interpret or re-interpret another person's, through this memory, through another person's look upon my life, it made me reconsider one small but significant part of what my life was. The value of others' perspectives upon our life The idea that we finally, blessedly, don't have and don't get the final say about what our life really means, it's a really beautiful thing, according to the movie. One of my favorite books that I read back when I was in Div School was by C.S. Lewis, who some of you might know was an Orthodox Christian or was an Orthodox Christian. But it's really interesting. Whenever he was writing about heaven or hell, he never used literalized ideas. Heaven was never a place of up in the clouds and constant sunlight and hell was never a place of pitchforks and fires. Heaven for him was that place of a liberated, non-fearful love. Hell was that place of absolute loneliness 
with this book that he wrote that I really remember. It's called a beautiful, beautiful title. It's called Until We Have Faces. Until We Have Faces. And the whole idea is sort of like what they're talking about in Afterlife, a movie from a completely different culture and a completely different context and time in history. The idea is that in this life, unless we try real hard and are really honest about moving beyond our ego, we don't really see our true faces. A photograph can't capture it. The mirror reverses it. And one of the most liberating aspects of what it means to develop as a person is that we can find another or some others who will be able to tell us the true meaning of our faces, the true meaning of our lives, because he's not talking about the physical stuff, obviously. He's talking about the states of our souls. That's what the movie is about. Lewis is making a universal point that heaven, whatever we might believe about it, is finally this. It is the ability to move beyond our narrow ego and have a perspective upon our lives bigger than just what we think about ourselves. This is actually, I think, the most liberating message of any true spirituality, that there is an antidote to our ego, our narrow perspectives upon ourselves, our belief that we are the only ones writing the stories of each of our lives. This antidote to ego, this blessed sense that if our memories are not our own and always being interpreted, reinterpreted, respun, reworked, well, for me, actually, what this does is I realize it. I do believe in eternity. <laughs> because if nothing is ever finished, then everything goes on. Just as Whitman wrote, that nothing collapses, nothing ever ends. There is no such thing as that overused word, closure. What meaningful thing would ever be closed, finished? There is narrowness, and there is fullness, and there is abundance. There is the ability to hold all of life in our hands. But not closure, not an end. I think that one of the things that I've always struggled with and indeed rejected in most in the traditional understandings of what the afterlife is, whatever it is or is not, is that it was somehow a place at the end of time. Kind of like you're reading a book and you get to the last page in the book and you said, close it up, it's done. Well, it just begs the question, what's at the end of the end? And what was at the beginning of the beginning? It never made sense to me. But instead of beginning and end, maybe the true meaning of eternity is this. That place where our memories are never fully our own and indeed our individual lives and the memories of them are gathered up into something much bigger and much greater and we get that perspective upon ourselves that we have always hoped. We get that ability to view ourselves in the truest way possible, the deepest way possible. If nothing is ever finished, then however we consider the afterlife, what is this? that our lives are contained in a bigger container than just our own individual hands can hold. Now again, whatever you believe, whatever I believe, and it evolves, about the afterlife, I believe it is finally speculative. But it is something I am coming into a deeper realization of as a part of my own spirituality. It is a change of perspective upon life worth having. Now, I don't want to just wait till the end and then say, as one famous clergyman said, 
And now comes the mystery. I want to start to be able to experience that here and now. And I realize that is what we are already doing. Every week in worship, the question of our meditation, the invitation to our meditation, to enter heaven on earth, what do we need to do? Take one conscious breath and one conscious step. There's not a mystery that Thich Nhat Hanh chose those words. Because the breath is common and the ground belongs to all of us. What Thich Nhat Hanh is asking us to do is to recognize that already here, right in our midst, is eternity. Here already, right in our midst, there is so much more in life than just our own narrow ego. It is that invitation to step into that larger life that will contain whatever is to come. William Blake, the great mystical romantic poet, he said that each of us have the capacity to do this, to see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower, to hold infinity in the palm of your hand and to experience eternity in an hour. To experience eternity in an hour. Brings you back to the film one final time. There is an old woman, ancient, and I'm told she is a very, very, very famous Japanese actress. And she looks, if anyone can look, to be said to look 105, she looks 105. And her time on earth is done, and there are no regrets. And she has a lot of memories <laughs> to sort through. The most resonant thing about her memory and she does this when she's in this sort of way station. This way station has a courtyard. And she goes into the way station one day during her week. And she collects all these beautiful wild flowers. And she holds them in a bag. And they are pink and delicate and rich. And we can see that her whole life has been spent seeing heaven in a wild flower. Experiencing eternity into an hour. And so it really doesn't matter what memory she picks because she did not live her life with one foot still in the womb. She enters into that whatever that comes next, fully prepared, fully alive, even in her death. And so we know that the pleasures of this world, although they are impermanent, and indeed, pleasure, so often we describe as something that comes out of a distinct experience. The Yankees won last night. I find it pleasurable. <laughs> There's more than that in this life, though. Yes, Teresa, there is. <laughs> Especially in those days when the Yankees lose, because they've been doing a lot of that recently. But for another time, and none of you care anyway. But instead of the pleasures, the impermanent pleasures to know as this old woman does and to cultivate in each of every one of our lives starting right now and continuing to cultivate it from here on out. That perhaps, just perhaps, joy is not dependent upon what happens to us. But joy is instead the deepest disposition of our soul and goes with us and carries us over into whatever comes next. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together.